0: This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. We are going to continue in worship through the preaching of God's Word. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 this morning in this next week in the series that we are calling Equipped. We want to learn to apply the whole Bible. We're taking big movement of God. We're pairing it. With a Bible study skill, and we are learning to handle God's Word better for ourselves and build confidence and skills around reading the Bible yourself. Before we get into this, let's pray together and ask for God's help. God, may you be pleased by the worship of your people and the gathering here. We continue to pray for the safety and praise you for the well-being of our church family. You have been abundantly gracious. We pray for many people, uh, including the president of our country and his wife, including some of our elected officials, and including many tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of other people and families affected by the coronavirus. We ask for their healing. We ask for a swift recovery for all people. We ask for... um, treatments and other things to be developed. And Father, may we be good neighbors, friends, citizens of this country, asking the question, how do we love? How do we encourage? How do we support? How can we be salt and light in the world during these days? We pray that we would do your will and fulfill your call as a church. And God, as we pray now, would you help us with this message? You do indeed rescue your people. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Well, in a minute, we're going to get into Exodus 3. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. It's great to be with you. I pray that you are encouraged this morning. want everybody, whether online or in the room, to follow along in their study guide. There's some great things in the study guide. If you haven't gotten a study guide yet, there's one on the table under the TV in the foyer, out there. If you need one and you're online, please email the church office, and we'd be happy to mail you one of these study guides. I've named uh, two people in my life. Well, I've named two people and a dog. It's it's a lot of pressure to give somebody a name. This is part of how somebody will be known for their whole life. Do you know that celebrities? Will actually hire PR people to help them with baby names. That's a real thing. I'm not making that up. Um, first, I want that job. If you want to pay me to name your kid, I will take the job. My fees are very reasonable. We can work something out. But I don't think I don't think I'd hire a PR firm. To do that, that's way too personal to put into the hands of someone else. We have two girls. Ironically, both of them, their first names are last names of men that Holly and I admire. Did you follow that? So, my daughter's first names are the last names of the men that they are named after. Now, when you're naming girls, after boys, which we've had to do, they are your options are a little bit limited, and so my oldest daughter, her she's named after a pastor a theologian who has had a profound impact on me. He's still alive. We recognize that's a risk. We've seen that in the church. I, I told him once, and it was super awkward. It was super awkward when I told him, uh, showed him a picture of my daughter, and said, "Hey." Uh, she's named after you, but he was gracious, honestly, how do you respond, really? I mean, after somebody says, I've named my child after you, how do you even respond to that? And my my younger daughter, she's named after my father-in-law, who is without question uh, one of the godliest men I've ever had the privilege to know. Now, being a girl dad, I love that for a lot of reasons, but one of them is these, these names. It was fun to name our girls. Holly and I ended up with this kind of pretty definitive split when it comes to names. We were, we were in it together. I mean, we, we agreed. But for whatever reason, I ended up with a lot of input into the girl names, and she really was pushing a few boy names. We don't have any boys, and so we haven't gotten to use them. And this, this so succinctly highlights how differently we approach things. I wanted these names that had, like, meaning and purpose and that were really significant and holly wanted names that she liked i mean she would never say like that she would say hers have meanings too but that's that's just the truth she just liked the names but i wanted names that are significant because names mean something they're a huge part of our identity and how we're known just the idea just think about this when you're naming a baby this is how not just people are going to know your baby But for the rest of their life, this is what people will call them. They will have to answer to this when they go to school. And when they go to a job interview, they will have to reach out their hand. You know, if we ever do that again in a social setting, they will have to reach out their hand and they will have to say, Hi, I'm, insert the name that you give them. I've been thinking about this one because I'm a pastor and I hope I get to do this. When they get married somebody like me, I hope it's me for my girls, will say, name, do you take this man who their parents named 20-whatever years ago maybe to be your husband, to be your wife? That's huge. That's a huge thing to decide right now that at their wedding, this is, these, these are the two people and this is how they're known. People come up with the craziest hashtags for their wedding. There's a lot of pressure to get a good name for a good hashtag going forward now. This is a huge thing to name somebody, and throughout the Bible, names are important. Last week, we were introduced to Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham after God made a promise to him. That promise was that through Abraham, God would make a great nation of people And through his descendants, Abraham's descendants, the entire world would be blessed. And this morning, we're making a jump. We're looking at the next big movement of God in that redemptive story. And we're going to learn God's name. God is going to tell us His name. So let me just catch you up a little bit. This is going to cover several hundred years, but as we are introduced to the big story of the Bible, I want to orient you, as I've said every week, in the timeline. So several hundred years pass, and what happens is Abraham receives this promise, and then he has a son, Isaac. And then Isaac has a son who God calls Jacob. And Jacob has a whole bunch of sons. The one we need to know is named Jacob. Joseph. Through some very hard circumstances, Joseph goes from living where Abraham settled in modern-day Israel, and he goes to live in Egypt. And eventually, Joseph's family, Jacob's really entire large family, ends up in Egypt through some providential circumstances of God. So this whole family that started with Abraham and this promise has now moved to Egypt and they've been there for a few hundred years and what started with Abraham and his wife Sarah and their one son Isaac over those few hundred years in Egypt grows to more than a million people. Some scholars estimate more than two million. And the people become so numerous that the Egyptians are worried that perhaps they will overthrow the Egyptians, sort of conquer them from within, so they put them into servitude, into slavery, and they force them into hard labor to sort of break their spirits. Remember last week where we left Abraham, God said that this would happen to his coming generations, that they would go to a foreign land and they would be serfs. They would be enslaved there. Now, I could tell you more. There's more things that happened, but I just think this is best explained now as we start to read. So, let's start reading in Exodus 3, verse 1. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So there's a lot, a lot of scenes setting up here. Really quick, we're introduced to a new man, Moses. Like Abraham, you can't know the story of the Bible without knowing Moses. Moses is a Hebrew. Another name is an Israelite. Today we call them the Jewish people. He's from the line of Abraham. But Moses was raised as an Egyptian. It's a weird set of circumstances. You can read about it in Exodus 1 and 2. After seeing an Egyptian taskmaster later in his life as a teenager, after seeing an Egyptian taskmaster beat a Hebrew slave, Moses murders the Egyptian and, fearing punishment, flees Egypt. And he makes his way to this land called Midian, Midian is modern-day northwest Saudi Arabia. If you know your geography in the region, it's just south of Jordan. So modern-day Saudi Arabia, northwest, just south of Jordan. And he stays there a long time, decades. He gets married. He has a life there. But he continues to think about his people who are oppressed. His family, kind of extended family, who's oppressed in Egypt talk more about Moses. Now verse 2, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. And he said, Moses, Moses. And then Moses said, well, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. i pause here for a minute. So with each of the messages in the Equip series, there's two goals. Do things that I want to be doing. I hope you will know more of God, and I hope you will feel more confident in studying his word in the Bible. So let me tell you how I want to speak into those, how I want you to know more of God this morning, and how I want you to feel more confident studying the Bible this morning. Goal number one, knowing God more, I want you to see from these verses two great truths about God that Christians have historically paired up together, because when you look at them side by side, you you really get a greater sense of awe in who God is. So the theological words, the things we're going to be looking at this morning are the words transcendent and imminent. Transcendent means that God is above. He is completely outside of or independent on us. He is supreme. Nothing surpasses Him. It's transcendence. We seek to exist without Him, but He doesn't need anything from us. Imminence means that God is near and present. Near and present. Together, they tell us, this is who our God is, what He's like. He is supreme. He rules absolutely over everything that He's created. He's part of His creation because of imminence. In every part of His creation, He's there. Just to be abundantly clear, I wanna, whenever we talk about imminence and Him being present in creation, I just want to be abundantly clear. People make this mistake all the time. When we say that he is in every part of creation, that you, he's in everything, I don't mean that creation is God. I mean that God's presence extends to every part of his creation. So my first goal is enlarging your view of God. We want to do that today by talking about transcendence and imminence. My second goal is to help you handle the Bible Better can actually do both of those same time today, but in a few verses we're going to learn God's name, and it's not what you'd consider like a normal name. It's actually a name that makes sure you can't quite define it or label it or limit it, and that plays into what we're talking about, which is the skill of understanding how the Bible is translated, These go well together. In hearing the name of God, he's actually communicating his transcendence and his imminence. But in order to know that, we've got to be able to work on the name a little bit. So that's what we're talking about this morning, transcendence and imminence. And we're going to do that kind of through the work of Bible translation. Don't worry, I'm not going to get all dead language nerd on you this morning. I just want to help you to understand a few bits of translation philosophy and some practical things. I'm going to teach you a few practical things that you can do on your own, even without knowing the languages. And you can do these safely. And I say safely because there are few things more dangerous. We should just say this at the outset of translation. There are a few things more dangerous in the world than somebody handling the Word of God, thinking they know the original languages, but really being holy inept at handling them. When I was in seminary, I took one summer uh, class that we called Suicide Greek. Suicide Greek is what it sounds like. You don't actually commit suicide, but maybe you kind of want to a little bit because you take an entire year, your first entire year of Greek, and you cram it into the summer course. So you have between the middle of June and the middle of August to learn an entire year of Greek. You go like six hours a day in the classroom, and then you go home and you study for three or four hours more in the evening, and you try to learn as much as you can and cram it into your brain over the summer. And so we're in Suicide Greek one day, and we're in in kind of the second half, and we're reading through the book of 1 John. It's one of the letters in the New Testament, if you know it. And our professor calls on one of my classmates and says, I forget this guy's name, but, you know, would you share your translation with us? And he said, I don't think I should do that. And the professor said, no, 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 we're all learning here. I, I, think, you'll, I think you'll do, you know, be good. Even if you've made a mistake, we can all learn from your mistake. And, uh, and the, the guy says, well, okay. But uh, I should warn you before I say this, that according to the translation I have, God is sort of releasing antichrists on the world at some point. And our professor says, well, yeah, let's call on somebody else then. The point is that you can be really dangerous if you know a little Greek or a little Hebrew. Here's where it gets really dangerous. That's a funny story. Here's where it gets really dangerous. Uh, The Jehovah's Witnesses have a translation that they call the New World Translation. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that that translation was done by five people, all of whom had that same one year of biblical Greek that I had at that point. Now, I've had more, but the most experienced Greek I'm not going to call him a scholar. Uh, Doer uh, had less than a year, had a year of Greek, and the translation has some glaring theological inaccuracies that lead to heresy. You can do a lot of damage if you pretend to know too much about the languages, but you can have some great insights unlocked if you admit and humbly say, "I don't know a whole lot, but there's some great tools out there that I can point you to." Okay, so that's what we're doing this morning. So I'm going to steer you away from trying to do too much, and I'm going to steer you toward knowing your Bible a little bit better. We're going to do that in Exodus 3. So let's keep going, verse 6. So God says now, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. We just talked about their names. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is the first place that I want to point out God's transcendence. Moses has already taken off his shoes an act of humility because he's recognized the special revelation that he's receiving. He recognizes how unique this is and how powerful this encounter is. And now he hides his face because he's afraid to look at God. God is transcendent. There's something about him that is so supreme. He reigns so high over everything else that when you encounter him, you will know that you are in the presence of what is truly great. And Moses knew it. All throughout the Bible it talks about fear. Not fear is in fright, fear is in awe, fear is in reverence. When we encounter the real and true God because of his transcendence, because of his greatness, we should fear him. Not fear him as one who stays far away, but fear him because he is as one who knows his power. Now we're going to talk about his imminence, that he draws us near. He's beyond our world. Doesn't mean he's not present in it, but he's beyond our world. So verse 7 now. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Remember, this is where we get the imminence. I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Those are all people groups. They're all mentioned in Genesis. This land is the one called Canaan, where we left off with Abraham. It's called Canaan in Genesis. It's where he lived for much of his life, the part that he knew God for, and it's where God promised that Abraham's descendants would live. Verse 9, And now behold, the cry of the people Israel has come to me, And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So there are two questions coming up now in the following verses that shape this. Moses is going to ask who he is. He's going to say, who am I? And then he's going to ask who God is. And we need to pay attention to the way these questions are both asked and how they are answered. We live in an age of self-identification and self-fulfillment. We believe we're the ones who ask, who am I? And we will answer out of our own personal identity. We will fill our own desires with our answer to that question. It's becoming increasingly popular for people to try to tell you who they are on their own. But people were never meant to do that. We were never meant to be self-definitive. We saw that a few weeks ago when we were studying the fall of humanity into sin in the Garden of Eden. The desire for self-identity, self-determination is present right there in the beginning of the Bible. There's a serpent, remember, who comes and he prompts Eve to desire to eat from the tree of good and evil. And he does that by leading her to believe what is already present there in her heart. She, she would just take the fruit. She would take power. And she would become just like God. Adam believes the same thing. And the lie is that to no longer need God, the servant brings, he said, you'll, you'll no longer need God. You'll be truly free. But it's just that. It's a lie. The moment we try to be like him is the moment we're absolutely and surely not free. In fact, we become enslaved. We give up the freedom of being intimately connected to the one being in the whole universe who allows us to be just who we are, who tells us this is who you are. And instead, we try to determine our own fate, we try to determine our own identity, we try to grab for our own power, and it twists us into becoming something that we were never meant to be. So, look at how Moses asked these questions. Who am I, and who are you? This is the path to fulfillment and peace and joy, being satisfied. You're never going to be satisfied by by saying, I am whoever and whatever I want to be. No matter how enlightening and empowering that feels, Freedom comes from asking, folks, freedom comes from asking, who are you, God? And in relation to who you are, who am I? Once we determine that, then you can start to answer answer questions like, what's my purpose? And, and, And how am I called to glorify the name of the Lord? So look at these questions. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So later, Moses is going to question God a little bit and say he's too old. He's 80 at this point, and he's not a very good public speaker, and to which God will say, I know exactly how old you are because I made you, and I know you're not good with crowds. That's why I'm I'm going to give you a brother. I gave you a brother who is good, and your brother Aaron is going to be the spokesman. Then Moses said, verse 13 If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So this is God's name. You might have heard the names Yahweh or Jehovah, that's what we're reading, those are Hebrew words, construct- Hebrew constructions that are translated, I am who I am, or more simply, I am. Now there are a few different words in the Old Testament used to refer to God, but this Yahweh, Jehovah, this is the most sacred one, it's his special name, Whenever Yahweh appears in your Bible, you can know it's been translated from this construction. It's most likely translated Lord, but you can see it probably in your Bible where it says I am who I am or I am because all the letters in the name are capitalized. There are other words for Lord. Adonai is one of them. And when that is translated Lord, it will just be an uppercase L with the lowercase o r d but in your bible whenever you see lord all caps god all caps i am who i am all caps that's yahweh literally i am who i am should be translated i be who i be which is actually kind of cool but let's concentrate on why it comes to us this way so first how it comes i've already talked a little bit about bible translation but i want you to know your bible it's the Word of God, and so to be reverent toward it, we need to be, but we don't need to be intimidated by it. God gave you a Bible. He gave us a Bible so that we could read it and know Him. God wants you to study your Bible. That's why He has. He doesn't want you to be intimidated by His Word. He wants you to respect it, but He wants you to know it. So originally, these words, like the rest of the Old Testament, except for a few verses in Daniel, are written in Hebrew. Hebrew. Ancient Hebrew. Hebrew is still spoken today, but it's morphed over time. It's different. The New Testament was written in Greek, and the reason that was written in Greek, even though it was written primarily by Israelites or Hebrews, is because it was, uh, that was the, the most common language spoken in the world at that point. So what we have of our Bible, just so we're clear, I think the more we know about the Bible, the more understanding we have of it, and our confidence in it grows, just to be clear, what we have in our Bible are not the original books or letters. I, I don't pretend that they are. We don't need them to be. I want you to build confidence in God's Word, so I just want you to know these things. I don't want to be challenged by it at some point and just not feel, you know, under-equipped. No pun intended with the equipped. Okay, so I want you to feel, I don't want you to feel under-equipped. We want you to be equipped to handle the Word of God. And so when I say we don't have the original letters, I mean we don't have the original copy of Exodus that Moses wrote. We don't have Paul's original, the, the letter he actually sent to the Romans. We have copies that have been meticulously handed down by Christians for centuries. Now, you've got to check this out. This is one of the best chapters in your study guide. We've put great pictures in there. You can see what these manuscripts look like. You can see about this. We've got a timeline of Bible translation. We've got some cool, um, we've got fun facts about Bible translations for you in there. Uh, you will like to look at this this afternoon. So in some cases we have really large, relatively complete fragments of biblical books from as early as the 2nd and 3rd centuries. Other things we have are just a page or even just sometimes down to a few words of small fragments that we put our Old and New Testaments together from. But here's where we can be confident. We don't just have a few. We have thousands of them. Literally thousands of them from the first couple, from the second and third, and centuries and on, and so there are scholars and there are researchers who do all sorts of things to both authenticate things they do with dating methods to find out how old they are, and then they check them for precision with other known, reliable resources. And so while we don't have Moses' copy of Exodus, we don't have Romans, the, the first one, we can be very sure that we have an excellent, complete copy. And when translation teams do their work of translating, they can make great Bible translations because they consult those sometimes large, sometimes small fragments, they authenticate them, they make, uh, they make decisions, and they can take the Hebrew and the Greek and they can render it into English or whatever language they're working on. Just as an aside when we're talking about Bible translation, one of the great needs in the world today is for ongoing Bible translation. We live in the United States of America, and we speak English. There are just an abundance of resources for us. But in the world today, there are estimates that there are well over 2,000 languages spoken that still do not have a bible translated in that language which means that there are by most estimates over 350 million people 350 million people who do not have a bible they can read in their native language we need vitally need bible translators as missionaries to learn languages and to translate the scriptures into those languages So that's what scholars do, is they take Hebrew constructions like Yahweh, and they try to render them into English, not only that's faithful to the text of Scripture, but that makes sense and puts it into languages that we can understand. The case of God's name is a little bit of a tricky way in doing that. Now, I think we can agree that when God tells you His name, you want to get that right. So, scholars work hard on this. The words themselves aren't complicated. I am who I am, but to discern their meaning is a little different. God reveals himself in this way because he wants to be sure not to limit himself. If you ask me who I am, I will probably tell you that I'm a husband or I'm a father or I'm a pastor. But God isn't defined by anything to say except to say that He exists on His own and He's limited by nothing. For Him to say, I am this or I am that is too limited. And so how do you translate a word where He basically just says, I am, I be? Capturing the truth that He was not created, that He is not contingent, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that he is supreme over everything. So how do translators try to wrap that up in the name? And we see God's transcendence and imminence here. He won't be limited, so he just says, I am. But he gives Moses that name after he tells Moses that he has been listening to, he's heard the cries of the people, and he's seen the suffering, and he will help. So this is who God is. He is the supreme majesty who cannot be limited, who eternally exists all on his own, who is, but he is also the one that steps down off his throne to be near to us. In the New Testament, Jesus is approached by the Pharisees, and he's asked basically if he's a child of Satan and he has a demon. That's really what they ask. Are you oppressed by a demon? Are you possessed by a demon. And I I think we can agree right off the bat that that's not a a real setup for healthy dialogue. Some of you probably thought it, uh, but we can't verbalize it. You're just, you know, having a conversation with somebody, you're like, are you possessed right now? (laughs) Like, are you all here right now? Because what you're saying sounds crazy. So they come and they ask Jesus if he's possessed. And his answer is, no, I'm not possessed. And if you were really paying attention, this is what Jesus says, if you were really paying attention, you would know that. And then he says that they are always the Pharisees, the Jews, they are always talking about their father Abraham. We said that last week, that the whole uh, uh, way that Jews look backward is they look back to Abraham as their ancestral father. But Jesus says that they should have known when he showed up because Abraham looked forward to Jesus coming. And not only are they confused by that, but Jesus is calling them hypocrites and kind of dumb at the same time. And and so they ask that this is possible, how Jesus could know this. And I love this because they feel insulted by Jesus, and so they try to insult Jesus back. This is all in John 8, starting at verse 48, if you want to read it. Um, So that's kind of funny. So they they feel Jesus has called them dumb hypocrites. And um, when Jesus said this, he was... uh, he, Jesus died when he was somewhere between 30 and 36 years old, and so this is a couple of years before that, and so he's like 33, 34 max, okay, when he says this, and they ask him, they said, how is it possible that Abraham could have looked forward to your coming when you're not even 50? So they just basically knocked him down to, you know, they said, he's 33, we'll just call him 33, and they said, what are you, about 50? How is that possible? So this is insults going back and forth, and what Jesus says is important. He says, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And that's a strange way of rendering it in English, but they render it that way, our translators do, because it's a direct reference back to Exodus 3. The reason we can be so sure of that. And that's what the Pharisees heard too. The Pharisees absolutely heard them referencing Exodus 3 because right after that they pick up stones and they're ready to throw him at him. They're, they're ready to kill Jesus for blasphemy. But Jesus hid and escaped. It wasn't yet his time to die. So I want to close with two things. First, a few practical stills around Bible translation that you can make use of. And second, I want to talk about the transcendent God who is imminent, near to us. Um... But not just close, he's, he's tender and gentle. So that's just two things to close. So here's what you can do with Bible translation. There are a few resources that can be really helpful to you in Bible translation. First, there's a Bible called the Amplified Bible. You can access it online. Search for Amplified Bible. And when it comes to many keywords, you can see alternatives that the translators have put in there of the Amplified Bible, but maybe they chose to leave out in other Bible translations, and it may help you. Another way to enrich your study of the Bible through translation resources is to use something that I also told you about a few weeks ago. There are a few websites, one out there that I like is called Blue Letter Bible. You can get, it, you can get into this Bible's website, and they have online entries from what's called a lexicon. A lexicon is a little bit like a combination of a dictionary and a thesaurus. A little bit rolled into one for translators. It helps you define words and it tells you what are similar words. So Hebrew and Greek lexicons take original language words that have a range of meaning. There are some Greek and there are some Hebrew words that have one-to-one parallels, but there's a whole lot of them. We do this when we translate modern-day languages where we're just not sure. You just can't take the, the words and put them in the right order and get the same phrase, so you have to render them, not just translate, but render them. Lexicons help us to render Greek words and phrases into the ideas, and they do that by looking at other contemporary sources, ancient sources. They do that by helping you. So, it doesn't mean that words are always interchangeable just because they appear in a lexicon, but it may show you sort of how ancient people would have understood the idea ...that the original writer was getting at. So you can't just necessarily say, oh, you swap out one word for another. That's going to lead you into some type of heresy. You can't just open up a lexicon and go, oh, well, these two words mean exactly the same thing. You can't do that, and I'll give you an English example. Uh, if you look at an English dictionary, the word great, one of the synonyms or one of the definitions in a thesaurus will be large... Great and large. Do not go home and tell your spouse that they are large when you mean great. You get it? You can't just interchange words. But you can get an idea for range of meaning and get an idea of what the original author may have intended beyond the one word That the translators did. Because sometimes translators are just forced to go with the word. We're going to release a video later this week of me uh, interviewing one of the team that translated this ESV Bible that we're reading from right now. A friend who was on the translation team. We're going to interview him about that process. And you want to check that out. He's got a lot of good stories, fascinating things. Sometimes Bible translators just have to pick a word and they have to go with it. But there's other things that will open up if you consult some of these resources. And you can do that without even knowing the languages. So Jesus also says, I am. He doesn't define himself. But I started to think, what does he tell us that he's like? For the next 1,400 years, this event right here and the one that just comes just shortly after it, when Moses leads the people out in the Exodus, you know, the story of the, Red, the parting of the Red Sea and the people of Israel walk over on dry land and the Egyptianite army is swallowed up. They look back to Moses, still to this day, Jewish people do, people as their greatest leader and prophet. That's why the two most important days on the Hebrew calendar are Passover and Yom Kippur. We just had that a couple days ago, the day of atonement. God uses Moses to rescue his people from slavery, and then Moses receives on this mountain that he's on right now, the law shows them their sin, but also how to make amends for it, to be saved from it. So for 1,400 years, this is the clearest example of God's love and strength. Within 1,400 years later, Jesus is born. And Jesus is born not just to rescue his people from physical slavery and earthly bondage, but he shows us the way to be saved from spiritual bondage and to be free from sin forever. All throughout his life, Jesus links back to this name. He says over and over and over again, I am. There are seven particular statements in the Gospel of John that people look to. Jesus clearly means to reference this part right here. I am. He says things like, I am the resurrection, the life, and I am the bread of life. Clearly, Jesus wants us to know that he is this God whose name is I am. But he also wants us to know what he's like He didn't go around saying, I'm a carpenter or I'm a fisherman. He told us what he is after these statements. So I just want to pick out three places. One is from those seven statements in John, and two are others. I just want to read them to you, and then I want to talk about them very, very briefly, and then we'll be done. Jesus said to him, just this man, I am, it's John 14, 6, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Clearly, Jesus is showing us a different way of rescue. Moses led the people out of slavery into the promised land. Jesus leads people out of bondage to sin and into the kingdom of God. He doesn't say, I am a way, I am a truth, and I am... I can give some life. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus very clearly is telling us that he is the one and only way to God. You might say, well, that sounds awfully exclusive. Not exclusive at all. Open to everybody. Anybody can come to faith and cry. Anybody can come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the most inexclusive, most all-encompassing invitation in the world. It's for everybody. It, is, it does not ex- exclude criminals. It does not in- exclude great sinners. It does, not include, it, it does not include even the worst or exclude even the worst of people. Anybody can come to the Father through Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Second place in the Great Commission, Jesus says, I am Here's his imminence. With you always until the very end of the age. This is at the end of Matthew chapter 28. I am with you always until the very end of the age. Jesus wants us to know what he is. He is the God who is with us. The age that Jesus is talking about is still taking place today. Jesus is with you. He is with us. There is no place that you can go that God doesn't go with you. There is no circumstance that you will go through that God isn't by your side going through. He's with us always until the end of this age. And there's this third place. There is a book uh, called Gentle and Lowly. By a guy named Dane Ortland, and it is one of those books that I, I, I think is easily one of the best books that I've read in a decade. I'm reading it so slowly. I, I tend to skim a lot. Um, I want to read widely, and I'm not a very fast reader, so I have to get through things quickly and so and I'm just reading this book so patiently because it's just dripping with the tender mercy of grace. And Dane Ortland points out something that I had never realized. I've probably read it a hundred times. In all of the Gospels, in all of Jesus' writing, he only tells us one time what his heart is like. He says what his work is. He says what his purpose is. He says what his mission is. He says how he's like God. But there's only one time in the Gospels where Jesus tells you what his heart is like, and I want to read that. Matthew, uh, This is Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 28. This is the God who is transcendent, who has become so near to us by being born into. And he makes many powerful statements in the Gospels. But the one thing he says of his heart is, I am gentle and lowly. Folks, God is not angry with you. He's not angry with you. He's angry at sin. He has wrath toward it. But when you come to Christ and when you ask for forgiveness, Jesus is gentle toward you and anybody can come because he is lowly in his heart. He does not ask for only the best to come. He does not ask for the cleanest. He does not ask for the most pure. And he will not get mad at you when you come. He's gentle. He's a gentle Savior, this God who appears, who draws out, who parts the sea and sweeps the Egyptian army up when he comes near and says, this is what I'm like. He says, I'm gentle. You can come to him, this great I am, and he will welcome you softly and tenderly, and he will say, give me your cares and your burdens. I will take them, and in return, I will give you a light. powerful for Moses to encounter God. God does powerful work, but He does it in such a way where He is gentle and He asks anybody to come. He says, come and see my power. So, that's our invitation today, this great I Am. Come and see His power, knowing that He bends low to welcome you. Let's pray. God, may we know you as the powerful creator of all, but also as the one who stooped low in Jesus, who says that he is gentle, and contrite. You promise not to be angry with us when we come in the name of Jesus, when we come in that spirit thank you for this gathering of the Lord's people. Speak to us through your word. We encourage one another. May you continue to shine light and grace upon us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.